0: Please be advised, this sermon contains sensitive and mature themes and is not intended for children. So a good part of my job involves asking challenging questions, involves asking questions that maybe are designed to have all of us, including myself, become a little bit more uncomfortable, you know, get us to take a look at things we might want to ignore. So today I'm going to ask you one of those questions and maybe you embarrass easily. Maybe you're resistant. I guess we'll see. How many of you still currently own a stuffed animal from your childhood? Look around the rest of you liars. Come on. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I do. Oh, so you know who that is? Opus the penguin. Any of you remember, perhaps you were a child in the 80s or alive in the 80s like I was? Bloom County. Early great little cartoon comic that would uh, come out every day of the week and Sundays. Opus was the trusting, open-hearted, kind of naive, always trying, always aspiring, flightless waterfowl, as he called himself. Opus the penguin. I keep him around as kind of a spirit guide for me to remind me to be open and trusting and also to be as resilient as Opus was. And actually, I would say still is. I imagine in my real flights of fancy that Opus kind of does come to life every once in a while and gives me some words of wisdom when I need it. And that's where today's movie comes about. If if Opus came to life instead of being an earnest, naive penguin, he came to life as a foul mouth, wisecracking, substance abusing stuffed animal. That's Ted. That's today's movie. Ted begins in 1985 when John, who is a lonely young boy, gets a Christmas present of a teddy bear, which he names completely unimaginatively Teddy. Shortened to Ted when he grows up. And he wishes and he hopes with all the magic at his disposal, which is to say all the magic of the universe, that this stuffed animal would come to life. And it does. That's 1985, fast forward 27 years later to today, and Ted is still living with John and his girlfriend, Lori, who is growing tired of them very quickly. Ted, who was once a celebrity, a stuffed animal who came to life. I mean, wow, amazing, that's incredible. And then when people get used to him and his increasing antics, he is greeted with a big old collective yawn. People don't think anything is too special about Ted anymore. And so Ted and John, they have a kind of real slacker, unimaginative life, which includes in the beginning of each day, beer and bong hits for breakfast, which isn't nearly as funny as the filmmakers think it is, and an intense fixation, which I really loved with the wonderfully cheesy early 80s version of Flash Gordon. Any of you remember that? That bombastic soundtrack from Queen, they just live their lives by this movie's teachings. Not that it really has any teachings to give, but they still try to aspire to live their lives by it. I found this movie like an overly long version of uh, Family Guy. Same guy who created Family Guy created this. An overly long version of this, which is to say one-third of it I found very funny. One-third of it I found completely offensive. And one-third of it I found completely stupid. It thrives in being set in Boston. And any of you know this term, it is mass humor. Take that word apart and you'll get it. Guys named Sully with big beefy necks who talk in a New England kind of accent that I will not attempt to approximate right now. The movie wants to have its cake and eat it, too. It wants to get almost all of its humor from stupidity and at the same time point out. And it does this. Consistently, I can say the movie is successful, but it does this consistently point out that all the difficulty in the movie comes from characters who refuse to grow up. I mean, Ted, the talking alive teddy bear, he is a transitional object. Maybe some of you remember that word is if you're a mental health professional or maybe you took a psychology course at some point, a transitional object helps a child Exists with some sense of peace and connection when the parent might be absent or maybe the parent proves to be Unreliable could be a blankie a wooby, a stuffed animal a teddy bear Something that helps the child experience a greater sense of peace and wholeness now psychologically for a child This is like a form of magic because it promises presence and healing and wholeness. The only problem is however Is that Ted and John, who first became Thunder Buddies in 1985, when they first experienced their huge, their first huge, massive thunderstorm together, are still hopping into bed with each other. Twenty seven years later, because they still have not learned to master what it is not to be afraid of storms. And that is just symbolic, not merely of the outer storms, but the inner storms. They still have not grown up. And by the way, I'm not going to sing you the Thunder Buddy song. I'm going to curse a little bit later on in this message just to let you know. But the Thunder Buddy song is even a little bit further out for me. But if you want to go to YouTube, you can see about the 27 second song, the Thunder Buddy song they sing. Here's the thing with the transitional object. It is intended to be exactly that, transitional. It's not that teddy bears and whoobies and blankets stop being important. It's just that we outgrow the need for that particular kind of magic. However, in the movie, John and Ted cannot. And so they have a massive case of completely arrested development. I mean, all throughout this movie there are references to one-hit wonders who are stuck in their past. Flash Gordon and the guy who played him, Sam Jones, if any of you remember him, who looked like he has been doing nothing but cocaine and steroids over the last 30 years. Nora Jones, who hasn't quite damaged herself, looks quite as much, but isn't quite the star she once was. The cast of different strokes are mentioned. Debbie Gibson is mentioned. All these one-hit wonders whose best days seem to exist in the past, and another character in the movie played by the actor Giovanni Rabisi who wants to kidnap the grown-up version of Ted and bring him back to kind of his lair, because his life is frozen in the past as well, too. These are all people who could not move on. And yes, in the movie, it's an absurd notion of not being able to move on. But even beyond the movie and its ridiculousness, Very often for us who live and breathe in real life, the worst devils we know are the angels that we could not let go. The things that provided us at one point comfort in our lives, maybe even a sense of escape, maybe even a sense of peace, but we still cling to them so tightly. We see in this movie, in very literal terms, the exact seeds and negative poisonous fruit of dysfunction and addiction. What at one point something that provided us peace, provided us escape, now just numbs us out, keeps us immature and stuck, renders us unimaginative and cut off. See, to make that transition from childhood magic to real, authentic, adult magic, we have to learn, and probably each of us are still learning to this day, To stay deeply in touch with our lives. The opposite of magic is to be cut off. It is to be alienated. It is to be estranged. And magic and the presence of it, as I'm talking about it here this morning, is that profound conscious contact with our lives as our lives are. I mean, we see it in the symbols of so many stories of magic. We see it in Humpty Dumpty. Here, the sad moral, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That is a story about brokenness and yearning for integration and not being able to experience integration. We see it in that silly magic trick of the magician's assistant who is cut in half and the legs and the torso. They go opposite from each other. And yet, remarkably, they have brought back together beyond magic. Beyond the illusion of magic, there is also that deep spiritual magic. Rumi, who charted the terrain of the soul perhaps better than anyone ever has. Rumi, the mystical Persian poet, talked about this moment when we find ourselves put apart. He says, do not ignore the bandaged place. Do not look away, as maybe we want to, do not look away from the bandaged place. That is where the light comes through. Magic for adults is about integration. It is about that deep and soulful opportunity that we have as we grow up and hopefully grow deeper to put ourselves back together when we may feel ourselves taken apart. Eventually, if we do grow up, we make peace with the fact that there is no such thing as deliverance from all kinds of difficulty. That is one of the greatest addictions there is, that somehow, someday, some way, when we get to that place and all our difficulties, they have dropped away. Then, ah, that day we can be peaceful. No, adult magic comes not in deliverance from all difficulties. Adult magic comes in deliverance with all difficulties. In learning to handle the thunder and the storms real and symbolic, not by killing thunder, but by knowing our fear, by getting in touch with our loneliness, by getting our touch with our doubt, not by rejecting these things, but by learning to work with them. Now, this is the thing about the movie. It does not aspire to, and it does not quite get there into real maturity. John finally does decide to grow up. It's set in Boston. There's a great little scene in which the movie comes to fruition in Fenway Park, of course, or Fenway Pack, as they would probably call it. John decides to grow up and let Ted go, and also, because it's a magic story, let Ted live And also become an actual adult and ask his girlfriend to marry him and do all those kind of adult things. Because he says, I never want to lose anyone I love. But that's not the real challenge of growing up. The real challenge of growing up is knowing that loving and growing is to know that we cannot capture and cannot keep and cannot control our lives. That's where the magic comes from. Making peace with that. Saw and read a great uh, example of this not too long ago in the online magazine Salon. I think many of you know Salon may have read something there before. It's by a woman named Tracy Clark Flory. And it's a story of how she came to be enamored of yoga. And she titled it a skeptic goes to yoga. It opens by her. Telling a story of her experience, her internal experience, and if you've ever done yoga or any form of contemplative practice, you may have heard this phrase before. The what's called the third eye, the realization, almost like a, it's a non-conceptual thing. So I hate to say, if you haven't experienced yet, I can't quite explain it to you. But it is real. It's a real experience, which is the sense of sensation that we are almost our essence, our very life force, is experienced right through the center of our forehead in a peaceful centering way. Tracy Clark Flory experiences this one day and says to her boyfriend as they are leaving the yoga studio, guess what? And he says, in classic kind of guy fashion, you farted? (laughs) She says, no, I experienced my third eye. And she says he looked at her with, you crazy girl, what are you talking about here? She goes on to explain that one of the reasons she sought out yoga this person who has been called by her friends a quote-unquote magic killer because she's so incredibly skeptical and so cynical about anything spiritual. Well, she sought out yoga in the first place because her mother is dying. And she says to start experiencing the world without her mother is to start knowing a world in which the reality seems to lack gravity that the normal rules of the world don't apply anymore. And these are her words, and I actually love them. She says one time, recounting what it was like for her to be in the yoga studio, when my yoga teacher had us clasp our hands over our hearts and said, may all beings everywhere be happy and free, all of which looked suspiciously like a prayer to me. Not only did I do it, but I followed up with an enthusiastic namaste, which in my head sounded like (laughs) na-ma-motherfucking-stay. I thought, she concludes, I was going for the workout. I thought I would disregard all that spiritual crap. The opposite turned out to be true. I started going for the spiritual crap. She says at one point that is she engaging? She asks herself in kind of a magical thinking that, you know, with her mom dying, everything can be taken care of, but that's not really what she's there for. She's not engaging in the illusion that her mother won't die. She is engaging in the practice of being in touch with her life when life becomes its most difficult, rather than fleeing, rather than seeking escape, seeking a deeper relationship with what is here and what is present. Certainly, as all of us grow towards maturity, it means leaving behind those sometimes very childish, not childlike, but childish ideas that we hope we can always be safe. We hope we can always be comfortable. We hope, or maybe we insist, that if the world were more just, we would get our way all the time. Growing into maturity means that we have to let that go, but... Growing into spiritual maturity also means that we need to let go of some other things that we may learn as we grow up, a kind of jadedness and cynicism and a skepticism about anything that pushes our boundaries, a refusal to be amazed. And perhaps the deepest skepticism, the deepest thing we need to let go of if we are growing into being spiritually mature beings is the refusal to be healed. How do we know we're experiencing the refusal to be healed? Even if we're not saying out loud to ourselves or to the universe, no, I want to stay broken. How do we know that we're experiencing the refusal to be healed? We know it and we experience it internally when year after year after year pass by and we feel those same old complaints. And we wonder, we wonder if at our core we are irreparably broken. That even if we don't believe in original sin, the doctrine of original sin, that maybe we're actually doing something worse than believing in it. We're actually practicing original sin. That is the refusal to be healed we need to let go of. Adult magic consists so much in these words from the great writer of whimsy and spiritual depth, G.K. Chesterton. He's the one who wrote, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. He also wrote these words, we are perishing for want of wonder. Full stop. Not for want of wonders. I'm going to say that again. We are perishing. This is what it means not to refuse to be healed. We are perishing not for want of wonder. But for want of wonders. Adult magic most profoundly lies in the power of our perception. I think about one of the greatest pieces of wisdom I know from the Sikh tradition. And, of course, so many of us are still thinking of the people in that tradition, particularly in the people in the temple in Wisconsin, who were assaulted in the most unimaginably cruel and vicious ways. Teg Bahadur, one of the teachers, one of the great teachers of that Sikh tradition, talks about the power of our magical adult perception and he asks the question, why do you go in the forest in search of the divine? The Sikh teacher asks, God lives and abides in you as well as fragrant dwells in a flower or reflection in a mirror. So the divine dwells in everything. Look, therefore, in your own heart. The problem for many of us as adults is not that the world has stopped being full of amazing things. The problem is that we have stopped looking for what is amazing. We have stopped looking for the everyday ordinary miracles Perhaps because, and I hear it all the time, and I hear myself saying it, and when I say it, it drives me up the wall. What do I say? I'm so busy. I schedule myself and then schedule myself even more in my mind than I do with my heart and my hands. And I crowd out the opportunity to be surprised. Our idolatry is our busyness and thinking that the world needs us so incredibly much. That it will just somehow drop away. We forget that the world can be amazing because we do not give the world space to be the world. There's a theme throughout this movie that it does quite well. A jaded response to fame and to something wonderful. A kind of been there, done that. What's next? What's now? What's new? Gimme, gimme, gimme. That can never be satisfied because it is a bottomless want. (laughs) A bottomless want that just needs and needs and needs because the way of wonder is this to love space, to love openness, to love even emptiness. Think about that. Loving emptiness. That is a really negative word, especially in the Western tradition. The Eastern traditions, Eastern spiritual traditions do such a better job with emptiness in the Western world, we're, we're often told to fear emptiness. We've got to fill emptiness with something, with ourselves, with our effort, rather than allowing emptiness to simply be. We associate emptiness with lack, with deprivation. And perhaps that is why so many people, and I meet so many people like this, who profess a deep faith, but don't live faith. Because at the core of any religious fundamentalism, there is something even deeper and more corrosive, which is emotional fundamentalism. Emotional fundamentalism doesn't just live because of a closed mind. It lives with a closed heart. Adult magic is the ability to affirm simultaneously that we can be full and we can be emptied and we can be full and we can be emptied and we can be full and we can be be emptied simultaneously. This is the magic of human wholeness. It is not lacking nothing. Wholeness has nothing to do with perfection. Wholeness has nothing to do with being able to explain all the intricacies of the universe. Wholeness is being able to be really receptive to anything. What does that look like? I think it looks kind of like this. Think of a conduit, an electric wire, charged full with the charge of the soul. The only reason a wire can be that way, and if I get the science wrong, I apologize. I'm dealing in the realm of metaphor here. But I have to believe that that wire can charge itself full and charge full what it is designed to do, because simultaneously it is full and it is empty. It gives off and it takes in all the time. That is how it runs Charged full with the charge of the soul is not a static state. It is to imagine our lives as a conduit for the very grace and beauty and love of this universe. There's a way of talking about this, especially in the Western tradition of what's called process theology, which imagines God, the spirit, the divine, not as a being out there and above, sitting down, judging. But as the pure potential of being itself in all of creation. This is what we mean with one of our core beliefs at Wellsprings when we say, and it's not at all an evasion, I think it's just the truth, that we can experience God, we can experience spirit without being able to define it. Because how can we define that which is, by definition, paradox there, infinite? To be open, and to be giving, to be full, and to be empty simultaneously is to be able to relate to the present tense possibility of what is here in our lives right now. This is the amazing magical truth of what real adult spiritual maturity and magic means. That the potential possibilities are being realized in our very lives, this entire universe, right here and right now, as much as any other moment that any other creature has ever lived. Now, the truth is, I find process theology really boring and really dry. I've never met a process theologian that could teach me as much as this image has taught me. The river that flows. Wilco, one of my favorite bands, they talk about theologians. They don't know nothing about my soul. Rivers know something about my soul when I think about all of our souls. And it's the same image, but much more older and ancient than an electrical wire. This river is simultaneously emptying itself and filling itself. It could not be a river that runs unless it was doing both simultaneously. And we can be exactly like that river. I think of one of the other great songs by the songwriter that we had with our fourth song here today. Holy Now, Peter Mayer. One of his wonderful songs is called God is a River. And I think this is exactly what he's talking about. That life is flow if we learn to swim. And when we recognize when the rivers, when the internal rivers of our own hearts go dry, we recognize not damnation. I recognize they're two different words, but they sound the same. So that's why I'm playing with them. Damnation and being damned up. Not in some sense of otherworldly punishment. I mean, we sit here in a universalist congregation. We don't have a doctrine of eternal hell and damnation. But in this life, when we find ourselves becoming tights, experiencing that clench, not just in our fist, but perhaps at our very core. We know what it's like to be damned up like an artery that being calcified, sclerotic, can no longer carry the life force of the blood throughout the body. To learn to loosen the grip of our attachments, our need to control. Just a little bit. And perhaps if you're wondering what adult magic is really like for you today, I encourage you to start with your body. Are you feeling clench? Are you feeling tightness and tummy and legs and hands? Just first get in touch with that clench. Because if we can start to get in touch with the clench that's in the the body and in the core, then maybe we can get in touch with a little bit of the clench that's in our hearts and our souls. If we can learn to open a little bit, we can let some of that magic in and make wide the way of our lives. And we can recognize that, in fact, magic is all around us. Remember, adult magic is about integration. It is all around us as it is certainly the potential for it all within us. It helps us recognize the difference between real, true adult wonder and mere thrill seeking. I'm going to end with two examples of this. I just got back from some vacation and a week ago, Friday, I was driving back on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and there was a young man I know because I saw him several different times who was driving and weaving in and out of traffic, literally stopping and going back and going forward. It reminded me like he was playing a game of freaking Frogger. You remember Frogger? Remember the game? The little frog tries to get across the highway. Well, he was going with the traffic, but he kept dropping back and moving forward and in and out. And it was freaking dangerous. And I saw his face and he had like this as he was passing me several times. Once on this side, once on that side. This maniacal <clears throat> grin. And no doubt he probably thought he was experiencing some magic. But it was such an immature way. It was mere thrill seeking. It was mere adrenaline. And it imperiled him and many of us. That's not magic. Well, a week ago right at about this time I was sitting in a paraglider simulator that's paragliding some of you asked before the service what was I doing this last Sunday that's what I was doing that's what I was trying to do because actually here's part of the disappointment I went through about five or six hours of the simulation and kiting which is learning to get the paraglider the the parachute up off the ground while you're on the ground and running with it and helping it get air and then the first person went up tethered exactly like this person and then the darn fuel punk broke on the tow vehicle, and he was the only person to get air the entire day. I'm going to go back and do it again. But here's the thing. He gave an amazing gift of magic. This was a young guy, maybe about 22 years old, and uh, I think it was in going into a senior year, co- college hipster guy, wispy beard, skinny jeans. He looked like um, he would either be uh, grow up to be a, a clerk in a video store, if they still had video stores, sorry. Um. <laughs> He would be a clerk in a video store, or he was going to go on and be a software billionaire. There are only two destinies for this guy in my mind. You know him, and you you, you know who I'm talking about. And when he lifted up off the ground, this guy who had been kind of taciturn and quiet and very much a young man who didn't want to betray too much magic, too much enthusiasm during the simulation, he yelled out at the top of his lungs, I'm flying! (laughs) And here's the thing. He's the only one who actually got to fly that day. But all of us who were on the ground still felt pure wonder. Because what he had the potential to do, we had the potential to do too. And that was enough of an affirmation of magic. So today, walking, crawling, flying, landing, falling, flailing, whatever. Today, may you do it magically. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine wonder, divine perception, divine magic, divine spark. O holy life force moving through all of creation, moving through us as certainly as you have moved through any creature and any manifestation of creation. May we know today the portion of magic that is ours if we feel ourselves to be like that painful archetype of Humpty Dumpty, that all the king's horses and all the king's men may not be able to put us back together again, that in fact what we don't need are the kingly or the royal accoutrements. Perhaps we need simply encouragement and strength of heart or the encouragement and the strength of our spiritual friends. If we feel deeply in touch this day, may we make that choice to be healers. May we make that choice to be so deeply in touch with our lives that when we put the head down at the end of the day upon our pillow, we can say, I have lived this day. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. Those are impossibilities. Today I have lived this day. May we say then Shazam and Amen.